0: Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to be with you. I'd like to thank Brother Doug for letting me preach the lesson. And we had a wonderful song service. You may have to fix my PowerPoint there. It's ready? Okay. And thank you for all of the different blessings that you've given to us. As we begin our lesson, let us raise the question, what is the greatest gift that we can give to God? Normally whenever we raise a question like this, it reads, what is the greatest gift that God can give to us? But I'm going to turn it around today. I'd like for us to think about of the gifts that we have to give. Which gift would God treasure the most? What would be the most precious gift that we could give to God? We're going to answer these questions, but in order to do it, we're going back into the Old Testament to a king by the name of Asa. He was the third king of the southern kingdom. 1 Kings chapter 14, verses 9 and 10 say that he had reigned over the southern kingdom for 41 years. Of the 19 kings that reign successively over the Southern Kingdom. Eight of them are referred to by the Holy Spirit as being good. Now we don't want to think of this word good as meaning good in perfection. We rather need to think of the word good as being good in practicality. That is, they really wanted to do the will of God. And they would strive to do the will of God in every way that they could. Asa was one of those eight. Of Asa, it is specifically said that he was a good king. But over in 2 Chronicles chapter 16, verse 1, the text says that in the thirty-sixth year of his reign, Asa made a big mistake. It was a mistake that you and I really need to think about because as we analyze the mistake that he made we're going to be able to see the answer to the question that we've raised. He is going to teach us by the mistake that he made what God really wants from you and me. The kind of gift that we can give God that God will really treasure. The sad thing about this mistake is he made the mistake about five years before his death. But so far as we can tell he never repented of the attitude that brought about the mistake. And when he later died after reigning over the southern kingdom for 41 years, he died in a cloud of disobedience. What was the mistake that he made? We're going to look at it carefully, and as we do so we'll find the answer to our question, what is the gift that we can give God that he will treasure the most? Asa found himself in the midst of a civil war. He didn't want it. He didn't try to create it. All of a sudden, it fell upon him. It came to him as a result of the northern king, uh, Baasha, who uh, was the northern king. and He was a warlike king. He was not a good king, as Asa was. He got upset with the southern kingdom and with Asa because he thought they were enticing people from the northern kingdom to come over to the southern kingdom and live there. We know why they were going to the southern kingdom. They wanted to be a part of the temple worship. They wanted to be under the oversight of the uh, uh, Levitical priesthood. Baasha had decided that he was going to keep them there in the northern kingdom. So he set it up for them to worship the golden calf at Dan. And he also set up his own uh, uh, priesthood. And the people didn't like it. Those who had good hearts wanted to uh, make their way over to the southern kingdom. Baasha decided, I'm going to do something about this. So he got his army together and he headed up toward the southern kingdom. And whenever he got to the border, there was a skirmish or two, but he managed to go on through those skirmishes and go on down to a small city that was a crossroads town. There were two roads that came together. They united and they made a very thorough type of road that went on up to the city of Jerusalem. So he decided that he was going to put up a blockade and utilizing his whole army, he quickly put together a blockade and he turned Rama into a whole blockade, small city. With an army working at your side, you can bring in timber, you can bring in rocks and debris, and before long, you can have a blockade that nobody can penetrate. And so the text says in 1 Kings 14:17 that no one was able to go in and no one was able to come out. Asa knows he's in trouble. He is the king of the southern kingdom. He has under his care the leadership of the faithful southern kingdom. He has under his care the temple at Jerusalem. He has under his care the Levitical priesthood. He knows he's in trouble. But he's not a warlike king. And he says to himself, what on earth am I going to do? How can I fight against Baasha? Baasha had a stronger army than he did. He didn't believe that he could run Baasha out of his territory. And so he begins to think about it. He calls in some of his captains. He calls in some of his advisors and he asks them what shall I do? How can I get out of the situation that I'm in? They talk about it and finally Asa decides that he is going to send for a man by the name of Ben-Hadad. He was the king of the Assyrians kingdom, spelled with an S. His palace was up at Damascus. So Asa decides to get together all of the silver and gold that he can accumulate, and he sends messengers up to talk to Ben-Hadad. Ben-Hadad was a younger king. He really liked to fight. He believed this was the way that you get anywhere in the world, is by fighting. And so they presented to him a plan. They said, here is our plan. We will give you all of the silver and gold that we could rake up and we want you to sign a document that you are severing all relationships with the northern kingdom and we want you to promise us that you will stand on our side and you will send some of your army over into the northern kingdom beat up some of the cities. That will get the attention of Baasha who is down in the southern kingdom. We don't want him there. We want him to come up here to the northern kingdom and stay up here. Ben-Hadad agrees to do it. He takes the silver and the gold. He sends some of his army over into the northern kingdom. He's able to capture I-John, Abel, Ma'im, portion of Dan, the storage cities of Naphtali, and maybe some other places. And after beating up those places and taking them under his control, he went back home. By this time, Baasha had heard about it. He leaves the blockade, he gets his army to march quickly back up to the northern kingdom. Whenever they arrive in the northern kingdom, they discover that Ben-Hadad has already left. He can see the wreckage that he brought, but he decides that he needs to stay up there with his own people and his own land, otherwise this might happen again. So he's going to stay put. Asa believes that he has won the battle. So he makes his way back down to Jerusalem in sort of a victory march and whenever he arrives many of his captains and elite citizens meet him and they shout hallelujah to him. They believe that he's been their man. He's been their man of the hour and after celebrating for a little bit the great victory that he's enjoyed he goes over to his palace and on his way over to his palace he meets up with a prophet. We don't know where he came from. We don't see much of him in the Old Testament. His name is Hananiah. He steps out in front of Asa and he says, Asa, I didn't come to you to rejoice with you. I didn't come to you to celebrate your victory. I came to you to rebuke you. You've been wrong, Asa, and I've come to rebuke you. You know what you did? Whenever you had a need for God, you ignored Him. And you went over to a pagan king, and you hired him with all of your silver and gold to go out and fight for you. You sent him into the northern kingdom to help you out. He went in there, beat up some innocent towns, innocent cities, and you got Baasha out of the southern kingdom by that means. But you didn't do it according to God's will, you established what you wanted with the arm of flesh. And then he said, don't you remember just a short time ago the Ethiopians came against you? They had so many infamy men, men, you couldn't even count them. And you called out to God and God said, I'll listen to you. And he brought you victory. But this time, whenever you were in need of God's help, you didn't call on God. You called on the world. You called on a pagan king in order to fight your battles for you. And then Hananiah makes a statement that has become the most treasured statement in all of the Old Testament. When you are talking to somebody who is really a student of the Old Testament most likely they are going to be thinking about this great statement that Hananiah made. He said to him. Asa, I want you to remember that the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. You acted foolishly in this. You went out to do what you wanted to do, not what God wanted you to do. Indeed, from now on you will surely have wars. You thought that you would get Ben-Hadad to work for you but Ben-Hadad went out to work for himself. You thought you had him under your thumb but Ben-Hadad put you under his thumb and you will fight with Ben-Hadad the rest of your life. We want to take the early part of his statement. Just that part that says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro across the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. We want to take that and look at it carefully. We need to divide it into about three parts and whenever we do we will see the answer to our question, what is the greatest gift that we can give God? Notice first of all that Asa says, Or excuse me, Hananiah said, Asa, don't you know that your God is a seeking, searching God? Don't you know that your God is just looking for opportunities to help you? Don't you know that your God is surveying the whole earth, looking for those who have the right kind of hearts so he can work through them? He is a searching, seeking God. And using highly figurative language, he pictured God's eyes as having legs and feet. And he said, those legs and feet are running across the earth so that God can see who has the right kind of heart. So that God can work through that heart with his great power. First of all, God is ever looking and that has an eagerness to it. Notice how the statement reads, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. There's an eagerness to this. God is eagerly watching for opportunities to bless you and to bless me. We've got to have the right kind of hearts, of course. So God is running throughout the earth looking at the hearts of men and women. There's an eagerness to it. Number two, there's a width to it. It says throughout the whole earth. Can you imagine almost 8 billion people on earth today? And God's eyes are running throughout the whole earth. He covers all the places. All of the level ground and all of the hills and all of the caves and all of the crevices. He covers all of the places. He covers all of the people. He looks at all the different nations. He looks at the young and the old. He covers all the places, he covers all of the people, and there is a depth to it. Whenever God looks at you, whenever God looks at me, he doesn't just look at your face, he doesn't just look at your abilities, but he looks at your heart. He wants to see what's inside you. He wants to see what makes me tick. He wants to see what kind of motivation I have. He's looking for the kind of heart through which God can work. Do you remember that over in Acts uh, chapter 1 the apostles are replacing Judas? And they have looked over the number that they had in that congregation and maybe in the surrounding area, the people who would be qualified to be a replacement for Judas. They had to be witnesses of the earthly ministry of Jesus and a witness of the resurrection of Jesus. And they found two. They found two men. One was named. Joseph and the other was named Matthias and those two men were placed before the little congregation and then somebody in the Apostles led the prayer. And as he prayed the prayer he used a Greek word that is found only twice in the New Testament Kardia It is a Greek word that means heart knower. And as they prayed it took us about three or four English words to translate that one Greek word. They prayed Lord you who know the hearts of all men show us which of these two you have chosen God's the heart knower he's the one that properly appoints and that word is used one other time in the book of Acts and that's over in Acts 15 verse 8 in connection with our salvation God knows who's saved and who isn't God is the heart knower he knows who should be appointed and shouldn't be He's the heart-knower. There's an eagerness to it. There is a width width to it. And there is a depth to it. He is looking at our hearts. Now remember, there is a gracious purpose to it. There's an old song that we have sung in the past. We don't sing it too much now. There's an all-seeing eye watching you. It approaches it from the negative viewpoint. Be careful what you do. Because there's an all-seeing eye watching you. But that's not the point of this verse. This verse is about God's gracious intent. God is looking for people that He can bless. God can't bless just anybody. He's looking for all of those people on this earth that He can bless. And He runs to search the earth where He can find those who are eligible for His great blessing. Secondly, Hananiah said, Asa, I want you to remember that God is a strengthening and securing God. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. We sometimes say, well, I'd like to show myself strong in behalf of God. Well, that's good. I'm sure God is pleased with that. But that's not the point of this verse. This verse says, God wants to show himself strong in behalf of you. God is saying, would you let me show you what I can do? Would you let me show you how I can help you with your problems? Would you let me show you how I can lead you out from under addiction? Would you let me show you how powerful I can be in your life? I want to show my strength in your behalf if you'll let me and remember this is almighty power god's power is almighty power do you know what the word almighty means it means that god has all the power he doesn't just have a little bit of it and whenever god wants to manifest his power he has almighty power to draw from there's not a veil of iniquity that god cannot tear down there's not a problem that god cannot solve There's not a solution that is not... God has all solutions to all the problems. He's the Almighty God. He can do anything. That's the reason why we sometimes say uh, nothing ever just happens, but rather it either happens because God has willed it or it happens because God has allowed it. It's Almighty power. Secondly, notice that it is clean power. I like to call it clean power. God will never put power in your heart to do evil. He will never empower you to do evil. It's clean power. God is empowering you to do that which is good and that which is wonderful. God will empower you if you'll let him. He'll empower you to overcome evil if you'll let him. He'll empower you to do his work if you will let him. And thirdly, his power is personal power. Whenever God does anything, he is the one who does it. He doesn't run over to a power source and get the power and then come back and provide that power for you. He is the power. Whenever Jesus was coming into the little town of Bethany to heal Lazarus, he stopped outside the little village. He wanted to talk to Mary and Martha before he actually healed Lazarus. So he stopped outside the city, Martha being the oldest, heard about it, and she came out to talk to him. And whenever she got to him, she said, Had you been here, my brother would not have died. And our Lord no doubt looked at her, and he said, Martha, don't you know who I am? I am the resurrection and the life I don't run over here somewhere and get some power. I don't even run over and get it from God. I already have it. I am the son of God. I have almighty power. And all I have to do is speak the word. And Lazarus will be raised. I've stayed in your home. I've eaten at your table. But you still haven't understand who, understood who I am. I am the resurrection and the life. Hananiah said, Asa, don't you understand? God is a strengthening God. You were in trouble. Baasha was a strong king. And all you had to do was ask. And I would have worked in your heart and through your heart into uh, delivering you from Baasha. But notice this. He says, Asa, would you remember that God is a sanctifying God? He is a sanctifying, heart-using God. God is going to do His work through your heart. You say, well, I would really like to reach the members of my family. I've got some members of my family who are not children of God. God wants to work through your heart. God does most of His work through the hearts of His people. He knows what He's going to do. But he waits for his children to ask him to do it. We ask him to do it through prayer. We ask him to do it by opening up our hearts. And having the right kind of hearts before him. And our text says the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth. To show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. Now that's the promise of God. You present to me the right kind of heart, and I will put my power in it, and I will work through your heart to do great good in the world. Asa, if you had have just opened up your heart to God, God would have put his power in your heart, and through that heart, he would have delivered the nation from Baasha. Now, it wouldn't have been a superficial delivery. It would have been a complete and thorough delivery. And you wouldn't have to worry about ben heydad anymore. But you're going to have to fight him from now on. The delivery was not complete because you did it through the arm of flesh. God wants to make your heart his so that he can fill it with his power and work through it. We want our own hearts. We don't want anybody in our heart. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. But God says, I don't work that way. I want your heart, and I will manifest my power in it. But first of all, you've got to give me a perfect heart. The old King James translation has a perfect heart. It is a translation of a Hebrew word that means more like a blameless heart. You can't be faultless, but you can be blameless. A blameless heart is a heart that is really trying to do the will of God. It's a blameless heart. Zachariah and Elizabeth are referred to in Luke chapter 1 as two people who were walking in the commandments of God in a blameless way. They were striving to do everything that God asked them to do. And as a consequence, the Bible says they were blameless in God's sight. That's a perfect heart. may not be the best translation for our day because when we think of something that is perfect, we think of it being flawless. My New American Standard translation has a heart that is completely His. My New American Standard translation reads, The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth, To show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are completely his. If somebody were to ask you, to whom does your heart belong? What would you say? Could you honestly say that your heart is completely God's? God says, you give me your heart completely and I will put my power in it. And I'll work through it, and I'll do wonders in the world. There may be still another translation that we could use, and that would be a surrendered heart. I believe this is the case because, remember, a new convert can have this. You don't have to be an aged member of the church to have this kind of heart. A new convert can have it. It may be that you've just become a Christian. You say, I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot of growing to do. That's okay. The question is, have you surrendered your heart? You remember when you married, you surrendered your heart. You said, I do. And you meant by that, I am surrendering my heart to you. And your mate was saying, I surrender my heart to you. You can surrender your heart even as a young person. And there are illustrations galore here. There would be Rahab. Rahab had a little bitty Bible. She had only two stories in it. She had in her little Bible the story of how God split the Red Sea and allowed the children of Israel to go across on dry land. And she had the story also of Sinon and Og, two Ammonite kings who were destroyed by the nation of Israel. That's all she had in her little Bible. But she said, I've believed I believe that your God is the true God. And she said to the spies who had come to her house when they were spying out the land, I want to stand with you. I want to stand with your God. And they said, okay. You get inside your house whenever we begin to attack Jericho, and you put the scarlet cord in the window. Get your family inside the house, and you'll be safe. It could be said, well, she is just running for her salvation, she's just getting inside, she's following directions so she won't be killed. Yes, that could be said. But here's the thing Did she surrender her heart or not? If she did surrender her heart, then obviously God is going to work in that heart and He's going to work through it. And as you follow the history of Rahab, she must have married one of the spies. So far as we can tell she married one of the spies we don't hear much about her but whenever we open our new testaments and we look at the genealogy of jesus she's in it <coughs> She's in verse five of matthew chapter one rahab only five women are mentioned in the genealogy of jesus and she's one of them and we go to james and as james is using an illustration of a person who's faith saved by faith actual faith not just factual faith He uses Rahab as his illustration. And we turn over to Hebrews chapter 11. The hall of the faithful. The hall of fame of the faithful. And Rahab's in it. She moved from the hall of shame. She was a prostitute. All the way to the hall of fame. Because she believed. She surrendered her heart to God. And God put his power in it. Didn't you change the history of the world? She's in the genealogy of Jesus. I think of Mary. This is one of my favorite sections here in the assembly, all these young people. I hope they're listening to me. But we think about Mary and Joseph. Mary must have been about 14. Now some think that she was even younger, maybe even thirteen. But she made some good decisions and she knew the Old Testament well. I think she was about 14. She lived in Nazareth. Now if you blink when you drive through this area, you'll miss Shoto. I mean if you're going down the road. Nazareth was a small town. Nobody knew about it. Josephus mentions 204 towns in Galilee, but he doesn't mention Nazareth. Nazareth is never mentioned in the Old Testament. It's never mentioned by the Jews. It was just a little bitty town. Small town. Had a well. And maybe a few other people who lived in that town. And there was a woman, a little woman, who lived in that town by the name of Mary. And she was 14 years of age. The eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. And his eyes fell on Mary He needed two. He needed Mary and Joseph. And whenever that angel appeared to Mary, 14 years of age, and began to explain to her, you're going to be the mother of the Messiah, you'll be overshadowed by the Holy Spirit, you'll conceive and give birth to the Messiah, she didn't understand it. All she knew to say was, so be it done unto me as you have said. Now that's a perfect heart. That's somebody saying, Lord, here I am. My heart is yours. And you put your power in my heart and you do with my life what you so will. God says, I'll do it. I will bless the person who opens his heart to me. And then there is Joseph. Joseph must have been an older man. Five times he's mentioned in the Gospels. Five times. And every time that he's mentioned, He goes and immediately does what he's asked to do by the Lord. That's the kind of man God needs. That's the kind of man God wants. And so he chose Joseph and Mary. I think that's true of Paul. Now remember, whenever you and I get to talking about Paul, we say, oh, what a mighty man he was. He was. He had the intellect. He had the strength. He had the abilities. But listen to me. Listen to me, whenever you see Paul you know what you see? You see the power of God. Here's a man who opened his heart to the Lord and God put his power in that heart and he manifested that power to the world through that one life. And the promise is that God does that for everybody. He is sovereign, he chooses what he's going to do. But God will work in you if you will open your heart and let him work through you. What is the greatest gift that we can give God? Of those gifts that we can give God, which one is the gift that God would appreciate the most? It's your heart. That's what Asa didn't do. Oh, he had his plan. He knew what he wanted to do. He thought maybe I can take my money. And I can get Ben Dad, to help me out. And we'll run Bass you out of here. But that wasn't God's plan. God didn't work in his heart. And this man never repented of it so far as we know. And he died with a life that festered with pride. And he died in a cloud of disobedience. What does God want? He wants your heart. You know what a perfect heart is, don't you? It's got faith in it. Hebrews eleven six. 6, Without faith it's impossible to please Him. It. It's got love in it. Jesus said, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. It's got forgiveness in it. Matthew 6, 16, Jesus said, If you will not forgive those who have wronged you, then I'm not going to forgive you either. It's got loyalty in it. Jesus said, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not the things which I say? It's got obedience in it. Jesus said, On the day of judgment, many shall say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not... Did we not cast out devils in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Didn't we not do many wonderful works in your name? And he will say, I never knew you. Remember, obedience is part of it. Now remember, we're not talking about perfection. We're talking about somebody who has faith, who believes. We're talking about somebody who loves, who loves God. Not perfectly, but we love God. And somebody who's forgiving, Somebody who's loyal. Somebody who is obedient. Dwight L. Moody said one time, The world has not yet seen what God can do through one man totally dedicated to him. I think he was mistaken whenever he said that. I think his statement needs to be reworked. And we ought to word it this way. The world has not yet understood What God does through one man. Totally dedicated to him. Maybe a husband in this assembly. Who has opened his heart to God. And he has genuinely allowed God to put his power in his heart. And manifest his power through his life. There's no telling the good. That's going to take place in that person's life. You know you think about uh, Steve Lay. I think Steve Lay's seated over here. Steve's older than I am, isn't that right, Steve? By maybe just a little bit. No telling how many people have been affected by the life of that man. I'm so glad that he didn't wait until he was 50 years of age to become a Christian. I'm so glad that he obeyed the gospel a long time ago and he allowed God to work through him and think about literally the thousands of people who've been influenced over the years. You know what that is? That's God's power working through one man. He will not know the far-reaching effects of his life until he gets to heaven. You can say the same thing about Doug. I'm so glad that he didn't hesitate to become a Christian and think of the good that has been done. The world has not yet understood what God does through one man totally dedicated to him. But you have to ask him. Asa wouldn't ask him. He was going to do it his own way, okay. You don't have the promise of God, though, if you don't ask him. And when you do ask him, you will have to present to him a perfect heart. That is a heart that is yielded to his will. You do that, and you have the promise of God. And then you trust him. You may not always see his hand, but you can always trust his heart. Whenever God made you and me, he said... I'm, not, I'm just going to give them one thing. Whenever God made you, He said, I'm just going to give you one thing. You say, well, I've got a car. No, you don't. Well, I've got a house. No, you don't. Well, I've got some money in the bank. No, you don't. You don't own any of those things. God has just loaned them to you for a while. God says, I'll give you one, to one thing whenever I make you. I'll give you a heart. And that's all I'll ever give you. I'll let it be yours. I'll let you have free moral agency. That is, you can choose to do what you want to. But if you're going to work with me, God says. If you're going to be my servant. If you're going to be my follower. I want one thing from you. I want your heart. You come in faith you come in penitence you come confessing Jesus you come being baptized for the forgiveness of your sins that's how you give your heart to him and you live with a heart that's completely his God says I can work with a man like that and I will work with him I can work with a woman like that some have been in the church for a long long time and have never given their hearts to God Oh, they were baptized. Maybe even baptized at camp. Other young people were being baptized and so they chose to be baptized. But they never gave their heart to God. God said, my promise is the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. If you need to come to him this morning, we would gladly help you to respond properly to the Lord Jesus, coming by obeying His gospel, by giving your heart to Him, while together we stand and sing.